people don't always agree. Well, then they should be made to. Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be going over this thread conversation between me and a guy who says he's not a Calvinist. So for the purpose of this discussion, we've renamed him not a Calvinist. Why not? We'll just take him at his word. He is not a Calvinist. And here is him. He's starting a sub-thread on a larger thread, and it's a specific question for open theists. He says, not related to the article, but I have some questions for the open theist. Philosophically, if God is a maximally great being, with some arguing he is being itself, how could he not know the future free events given his instantaneous omniscience? It seems a series of antecedent events can be traced to arrive at the present day state of affairs. Why wouldn't he be able to know precisely the events that will transpire in order to foreknow what will happen? So uh, that, this is an interesting question. So uh, the idea that he seems to be communicating is that God can look at all current data and then trace a trajectory through all of the future. You understand what that means? That, under, that means that there's no such thing as free will, that we are input-output uh, robots, and that you could precisely predict everything an individual is going to do if you knew him in detail, uh, every single molecule, every single uh, thought pattern, apparently these thought patterns are somehow mappable and that's, that's raw data as well. And then you could look at all the inputs that go into a person and you could, with 100% accuracy, predict how that's going to turn out. Plus, there would be no randomness in the universe. There, there's nothing that's random in the universe that's going to mess with God's predictive ability of the future. So if God has all current uh, ideas in his head, all current propositions, all current data, he would be able to precisely predict the future in its entirety by just letting the sequence play out in his mind. And in that way, he could create the future that will happen. That, that's the idea of being stressed here. Notice a few things. Notice that uh, he starts with this idea of the maximally great being, some sort of philosophical term, which means that it's, my wife was uh, talking to me the other day. She's like, oh, so what's wrong with uh, a maximally great being? It's like, well, they're not using those terms like you and I would use them. They're using them in a philosophical manner. A maximally great being is uh, using Platonic value sets, and uh, they start incorporating philosophy like, oh, if, if the perfect changes, then the change is either for the better or for the worse. And so if it's a maximally great being, then any change must be for the worse. Therefore, God cannot change. This is, this is how they do philosophy. This is what they mean by maximally great being. It's not, it's not what we might think of if we're just using that term in a layman. Like this is like the penultimate being. This is God. He created the world. He has a lot of power. And uh, yeah, that sounds pretty maximally great. And that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about a philosophical concept by which you can't add anything to God to increase his greatness. And so if God actually learns propositional knowledge, if his knowledge set grows, this is a change that makes him conceivably better because in their value set, 
the the raw data that's in God's mind, the greater that number, the better. And it's it's a deficiency if God's data isn't maximized, and then he has to incorporate some new data points into his data set in his mind. This is what they mean by maximally great being. It's a philosophical concept that they trick laymen with because, you know, that sounds nice. God's a maximally great being. Oh, that sounds pretty nice. God is perfect. Yeah, but that's not what they mean. They're not using the layman terms. They're using philosophy. Very complicated philosophy. Philosophy that's not obvious on the face value. And philosophy that incorporates very subjective definitions. And so <laughs> this, is, this is how I respond to them. I will get to a second paragraph here pretty quickly. So I, I put up the meme, a very funny meme, I think, uh, is of uh, me and Will Duffy talking. This is back when Bitstrips was a thing. So in Bitstrips, you, uh, they would give you little characters and little scenarios, and then you'd put all the dialogue and text together, and it was just a fantastic way for me to pump out all sorts of hilarious uh, concepts and, and kind of like the Gary, Gary Larson cartoons. That's what I'd be doing. But I did make this one on metaphysics. And I'm talking to Will Duffy. We're at a water cooler. And I, I have me in the middle of a conversation saying, so if you have God, but then you put a hat on God, he then becomes better than God without a hat. Thus, we should think the best God wears a hat. And Will Duffy, he responds, he says, in my model, God wears two hats. That makes my model twice as good as yours. And then the little caption down here is, Will and Chris got into a heated debate on theological metaphysics. And these debates are really that silly. So they take arbitrary values and they argue about what would make those values the best. And of course, a true metaphysician would claim that God can't wear any hats because hats might be parts. And, and so it's, it's not like God's wearing infinite number of hats. God has to be totally removed from any hatness. God doesn't have a property of hatness because that would degrade God, that would give God dependencies, things like that. Uh, but their model, it model is incredibly subjective, what they consider the best. And so a lot of this just breaks down based on personal preference. That's why you have metaphysicians disagreeing with each other all over the place about what it means to be the maximally great God. And remember, our good thoughts, our good intentions, our good definitions of, of what we claim the world is doesn't spawn the world into existence. So there's, there's nothing that I see that mandates these value sets. There's nothing that I see that mandates these concepts as being actually real. God being a quote-unquote maximally great being. The Bible certainly does not talk about God in these ways. In the Bible, God has motions. God's extremely passable. God uses those emotions to make judgments. God interacts with man. God gains for man. God gives to man. There's a give and take relationship in which each party is providing things of value to each other. God is a person within the Bible. God is not the maximally great being of Platonistic philosophy. So let's even pretend, let's pretend for a second Platonism was true got to throw the Bible in the trash. The Bible is explicitly, explicitly against this theology. It ascribes all sorts of things to God that violates this maximally great being theology. The biblical writers did not have this as a theological categories that they even considered. God was a person. God was relational. God was a being with a lot of power that other beings fought against. There were, there were these false gods 
uh, gods with power, gods who were real gods, but fought against the ultimate god who was Yahweh. And that they believed that they could beat these gods. For example, you have the Moab situation in which the Moabites uh, sacrificed to their god and bring about a great wrath against Israel. You have God in the Exodus punishing the gods of the Egyptians. These other gods are not the true God, but they are beings who fight against God. You have divine warfare. Well, one of the angels said, oh, I was striving with the prince of uh, Persia for however much time. That's why I couldn't answer your prayer on a timely, in a timely way. Because there's divine warfare going on. God is at the center of this grand cosmic warfare going on in the cosmic world. This is not maximally great being theology. The Israelites did not believe it. And so it's good to mock this. It's good to show that all the values are arbitrary and the discussions amount to organized nonsense. So that's exactly what uh, Mencken says. So I'm pulling him up. He was an American journalist during the reign of FDR and uh, he had a lot of insightful things that he talks about. And he, <laughs> here's what he writes about metaphysics. Is it seriously argued that Plato is the most enlightened Greek of his age? Then it may be argued with equal plausibility that Upton Sinclair has been the most enlightened American of this one. Item by item, the two match. As political scientists, as professors of aesthetics, as experts on the natural processes, in some ways true enough. Plato was clearly superior to Sinclair. For one thing, he was better versed in the jargon of metaphysics, heavenly made, which is to say the jargon of organized nonsense. The plain facts are that Greek philosophy was quite as idiotic as any other philosophy. They show that the salient Greek philosophers of Pericles were almost identical with the Chakogu orators of today, and that of the more enlightened Greeks regarded them as public nuisances. If history of Greek philosophy were known accurately, it would probably turn out to be no more than an imitation of some earlier philosophy now forgotten and maybe abandoned by its inventors as nonsense. So. This organized nonsense is what this metaphysics is, and that's kind of what I'm illustrating here. But uh, this, these, this metaphysics, these Platonistic values, are alive and well in the Christian community. And individuals like our friend here, not a Calvinist, champion these values, and they consider the people who don't accept these values or, or aren't familiar with these values as uh, sub-tier Christians. They treat us as sub-tier Christians if we don't agree with these value sets. And that's one thing you're going to find in Christian theology is theological snobbery, uh, where people assume that if you don't agree with their philosophy, that you're, number one, you're ignorant of uh, their philosophy, and number two, that you're just inferior Christians to them. And I, li I like to uh, put them on blast. I like to make fun of them and pull them off their high horses because absolutely their theology is false. It's silly. It doesn't uh, make any sense. It's internally inconsistent. It's very arbitrary and subjective. And there's nothing recommending it to the real world. This, it's not real theology. So back to the post. In his philosophy, he believes human beings have no free will. And so he's trying to interact with people who believe that people do have free will. People can make decisions. They're not input-output robots in which the exact uh, inputs that go into man will always spawn the exact same outputs. There's some sort of internal volition that's not uh, dictated by 
our our being, our makeup, our the the arrangement of molecules in our body. We are more than just a sum of our parts. We have internal volition. And if we do have internal volition, this scenario that he's putting out is just impossible to happen. Even if God did know the present in such a way that he is describing. It's not all that clear. It's not all that clear in the Bible that God has direct access to our thoughts. Sometimes you have stories in which God does have access to our thoughts. Uh, like, for example, in Genesis uh, 18, in the Sodom and Gomorrah incident, right before then, the angels go visit Sarah, and they're able to ascertain what she's thinking in her head when she's not even in the same room with them, she's like in the side tent, something like that. They seem to know what she's doing. Somehow, we, we don't know that the mechanism is not given uh, explicitly in the text. And the Bible throughout states that God tests people in order to know what's in their heart. So does God have direct access to our heart? What's the mechanism? If he does have access to our heart, what's the mechanism by which he could tell what's in our heart? What does it mean to have access to our heart? Maybe there's an internal volition that's concealed by God where God has to give tests like Abraham in uh, Genesis 22. And God says, now I know that you're going to be faithful to me. And so this promise that I made previous to you is going to stand. Let's move on to this uh, second paragraph here. Theologically, Jesus correctly predicted Judas would betray him before his death. He also knew Peter would verbally deny him three times. He knew what these people were going to do before they chose to do them. Scripture explicitly states God foreknew or prognosco. Oh no, he threw in a Greek word. Oh, that means that means whatever he thinks about that word is accurate because he knew the Greek word for it. Uh, God foreknew or prognosco what would happen before it does. Otherwise, how would prophecy even be possible? So notice notice a lot of things going on in this paragraph as well. Uh, Jesus is correctly predicting what people, people that he hung out with for a long time, he predicted what how those people were going to act. Uh, th this is his arguments for eternal, ungenerated, non-discursive, uh, exhaustive, unchangeable, unfalsifiable knowledge of all things within God. This this is this is that's his actual argument because Jesus predicted the actions of people he hung out with, then uh, that proves some sort of Greek philosophical omniscience within God. It, it, it's a very silly argument. Uh, and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll go into my response real quick. I say, using the same evidence, I am omniscient. There is an entire thread in, in here about my prophecies and predictions, which all came true. Perhaps your claim is a non sequitur. And so look at look at how he goes. He, his, his evidence is Jesus correctly predicted these things, therefore omniscience. And so I set myself up as a parallel. I said all these things are going to happen, and then they did happen. Oh, wow. That, I must be omniscient. This triggers these people to no end. Because their, their evidence for their claims do not actually support the claims that they're trying to make. And then they instantly, instantly jump to special pleading. You'll notice this with these philosophical people who think they're so philosophical and smart and above everyone else. As soon as you point out to them their evidence, 
uh, doesn't support the claims that they're trying to make with their evidence, they'll jump into the, whoa, are you, this, this is talking about God though. And so, um, of course, this evidence means exactly what I claim about this evidence because did you notice we're talking about God? We're not talking about you. <laughs> Happens every time. You could, you could put money on it. This is how these people think. Not a Calvinist writes, do you really think that your statement of explaining your omniscience at one point and then later doing so is analogous to God's statements about future events? It's not even close. You're not omnipotent. You could have failed to carry out your prediction even if you willed it. <laughs> so, um, I, again, like I've said before in the podcast, it's not particularly surprising when God knows things we're going to do in the future. It's not particularly surprising when God can predict future events. It's not particularly surprising when God carries out the plans that he wants to carry out. The surprising parts in the Bible are those times that he doesn't. And so we, we can't just exclusively look at times in the Bible in which prophecies do come about or uh, correct things about the future are predicted and then jump from there to some universal absurd absolute statement about God's relationship with knowledge and the future and God having some exhaustive uh, <laughs> exhaustive uh, non-discursive eternal simple uh, it, it's non-falsifiable knowledge of all future things that's innate to his being now identical to himself we can't jump we can't make that jump by just pointing out those examples, especially in, in light of the fact that counterexamples do exist. They exist throughout the Bible. Prophecies fail throughout the Bible, sometimes for reasons, sometimes not for reasons. The prophecy of Tyre, Nebuchadnezzar is going to completely destroy Tyre, uh, take all its wealth and uh, carry away its riches, explicitly fails, is not given a reason, and then he's given Egypt as a consolation prize, also which he never takes. Uh, then there's prophecies in the Bible which fail for reasons. Jonah says that the Nineveh is going to be overthrown in 40 days. The people repent. And then God decides not to. And it specifically states in the text that God did not do what he said he is going to do. God changed his mind and the prophecy failed. But prophecy is meant to fail. Prophecy, by and large, is God giving current intentions based on current circumstances, which are subject to change based on unfolding events. That's what prophecy is. Prophecy is meant to fail. Prophecy is not meant to come true. God doesn't want to punish Israel. God doesn't want to bring Israel into captivity. What he prefers is that Israel, which is has theological fidelity to him, he prefers an Israel which is pure, which is sinless, which follows him with their hearts, not one that's uh, entrenched in sin. That's what God wants. And so sometimes what God, God doesn't get what he wants. Uh, throughout the Bible, God doesn't get what he wants. And God has to take measures to try to rectify this. But sometimes the people repent and God repents in turn. Remember Malachi 3, the, the Calvinist favorite proof text. I, the Lord, change not, therefore you're not destroyed. Very next verse is, return to me and then I will return to you. God is a God of repentance. God is a God of change. Who will change based on current circumstances? So back to this uh, little freak out by this guy. He's like, oh, do you really think that your statement explaining your omniscience at one point and then later doing so is analogous to God's statements about future events? Yeah, a lot of times God does sit, tell us about the things he is going to do and then he does them. And yeah, it is analogous. 
Yeah, so I actually posted the little graphic of just the Nordic uh, Wojak. I think that we're, we're calling these things Wojaks these days. It's just a Nordic guy, and he just says yes without explanation. And uh, I point out to him, special pleading is pathetic. Because every time that they do that, where you, you tell them how their evidence does not um, equal their conclusions, and then they'll, they'll turn to special pleading. Well, it does because of this special case. We're talking about God, so therefore, anything I say about the issue uh, immediately means what I believe about it and not what you believe about it. Really, because that's actually what's in question here. We're actually debating if God knows the future exhaustively. And for you to think that any statement, just because it's talking about God, automatically means you're right and I'm wrong, we don't have a conversation. You're talking to yourself. You're special pleading. There's nothing in there that specifically specifically states that once we're talking about God, all these special rules kick in. There's nothing there. There's nothing there that says, I'm automatically wrong and you're automatically right if we're talking about God. This is not a conversation. This guy's full of himself. This guy's not a philosopher. He's, he's, a, he's a pundit and a particularly bad pundit at that. He, he writes, God cannot fail in his knowledge. We're going back up a post. <laughs> you don't, uh, he, a lot of these people like to shotgun blast you with a billion different points and they want you to respond to everything. It's going to be a waste of your time, especially someone as set in his ways as this individual. This is not a good person I'm dealing with. This is not an honest person who actually wants to discuss these issues. He's not worth interacting with. Don't spend your time interacting with these people. They don't care about truth. They don't care about rationality. And as you see, you know, he just assumes he's right. He doesn't prove he's right. He just assumes anything he says, you need to bow down and accept or else you're below him. Oh, how can you just refuse the things I say? I said it. It must be true. No, it's not. He writes, God cannot fail in his knowledge. Okay. But what he says will happen. Well, Nineveh is going to be overthrown in 40 days. Did that happen? Did that happen? God said Nineveh will be overthrown in 40 days. Did that happen? And watch them freak out. He is omnipotent. He can make it happen. Yeah, but God doesn't always get what he wants. And God has competing priorities. And God has trade-offs. God faces trade-offs in this world. Not even God is above trade-offs. Uh, God, God could, theoretically, save every person on earth, bring them to heaven. Uh, but then you have a heaven filled with awful people that I wouldn't want to hang around. You'll turn heaven into hell. God can't always get what he wants. There's competing priorities, and sometimes, sometimes he faces trade-offs. Would you agree that God is guessing and making an assertion about his dominion of the beast in the book of Revelation? Is it possible the book could be wrong? And the beast could defeat him. Well, the beast certainly thinks so. And I think the beast actually knows a little bit more about God than you do, random guy on the internet. Maybe, maybe, maybe Satan, who rebels against God and thinks he has a chance to defeat God, maybe he, who, who lived with God, interacted with God, talked with God, maybe he, I'm just going out on a limb here, maybe he knows a little bit more about God than random internet guy. Maybe. And so... I think there is a possibility that God could be defeated in some sense. There's, there's a book called Did God Know by Roy L. Seth. And he talks about maybe it is the case that if God's entire creation rejects him, God will withdraw and just give dominion to Satan. You know, he might, might feel defeated in that sense. Uh, that is a possibility that we, we could think about. 
And it's not something we just dismiss out of hand because we don't like it. Oh, that could never be because that would make me sad if that was the case and it wouldn't meet my philosophy, which I really think is true. And then God won't be a maximally great being if my philosophy is not true. And, and if that thing was true, my philosophy would fail. It may make me so sad. The tears would be flowing. Maybe we look at uh, the Bible for our data set and uh, we discard this Greek pagan philosophy and start asking ourselves biblical questions. Do, do the biblical authors agree with this philosophy that we have? What are their thoughts about God? What are their thoughts about the spiritual world? And it's not modern Christians' thoughts about the spiritual world. We are far removed from that. He says, I noticed you didn't answer how Jesus knew Peter would deny him exactly three times before the cock crowed. Peter had free will, made the free choice to deny him, and Jesus still knew it. It didn't seem to me like he's just making an assertion and got lucky when, when, it, it, when it actually did. I think we're missing some words in this sentence. But yeah, I accurately predict uh, the actions of free will individuals all the time. I gave the example where I was on that clubhouse call and I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm just about home. I was like five minutes from home. I said, as soon as I walk through the door, my girl's going to walk up to me and go ask me to go swimming. And so as soon as I got home, my girl ran up to me and she said, hey, let's go swimming. And I, I put her on speaker you know, for the whole clubhouse uh, room. And I said, hey, repeat that for me. And she did. And are, are these Calvinist people? He's not a Calvinist. So are these not a Calvinist people? Uh, do they ever apologize and say, oh, I guess I'm wrong. You yourself, as a finite creature with not very much knowledge in your head, can accurately predict uh, the actions of free will creatures and uh, not be omniscient. Do they ever? Do they ever take back and retroflect about that? No. They'll actually have these autistic fits in which they'll say, "Oh, well, you could have failed." Yeah. Well, well, in the Bible, God fails, and those are the critical things that we want to look at in the Bible to see whether your philosophy is true. The times that it fails. The times that it succeeds are actually not very remarkable. Uh, I can do it. I have done it in the past. There's evidence of me doing it. Your evidence does not lead to your conclusion. You are special pleading. You're not a philosopher. You're not a logician. You don't know what you're talking about. You're not being intellectually consistent. You're not being intellectually based. You're making absurd claims. You're assuming your views and and you're desperate for evidence because your evidence that you do present for your views is absolutely atrocious. Absolutely atrocious. You have to assume your own position when you're looking at your own evidence. Your evidence is not evidence for your belief. It's a talking point. It's talking point for your philosophy that in no way evidences your philosophy. So that's one thing about Calvinists. I know this guy's quote unquote not a Calvinist, but uh, they think that just talking about their position on a verse means that their position about that verse is the true position. So they do not prove that the verse means their position. They just explain what they think a verse is talking about. It's not a proof text. It's a talking point. And that's what these people are doing. So I post the guy this uh, Peter meme that I, I, I made. It's funny. And this is where I have the stories from the life of Calvinist Jesus. And it's going over this interaction between Jesus and Peter. And Peter's like, I will never deny you, Jesus. Jesus says, before the end of the night, you will deny me three times. Peter says, oh, I'm not sure what you're getting at. Do you mean this as a warning so that I learn about my insecurities and perhaps find the power to overcome the test? And Jesus, absolutely not. This is more about me declaring my omniscience to prove my Godhead. 
And Peter says, but back in Mark 13, 32, you admitted to not being omniscient. Jesus, well, I have some sort of latent omniscience. It's hard to understand. You wouldn't get it if I explained. Peter, but why is it that you would not know the future at some time previous and now know the future? Jesus, we will just say that God told me this will happen. That's how I know. Peter, uh, not from your three years of being my friend and learning about how I react to situations? Jesus, no, nothing like that. Peter, so what if I want to avoid this uh, pending denial? Can I like lock myself in the basement or kill myself or something? Jesus, nope, you're fated to do this. It's all part of God's eternal plan. God has predestined you to do this. And then uh, <laughs> Peter's like, did I hear some sort of rumblings about Satan testing me? And Jesus uh, does the whole shush thing uh, that the left likes to do. They physically force people to shut up. He says, shush, close your mouth. And so this is what he has to do with this Peter denial. The Peter denying Jesus three times must be a fated, scripted, predestined event, Calvinist predestination, that must happen. There's no variance. It's not a test. It's not a test of Peter. So if, if Peter actually didn't deny him three times, this would be a failure. The Godhead would be undone. And it wouldn't be a situation like Nineveh where everyone would celebrate and say, this is a great thing. We predicted this would happen, it served as a warning, and then you didn't do it, we should cheer and be happy. These people who are steeped in this philosophy want people to fail, they want people to suffer, and if the people don't fail, if the people don't suffer, then it, it's, it's an existential crisis to their philosophy. Again, again, they're not intellectually consistent, they don't look at the case of Nineveh and wonder Maybe, maybe if the Bible records Peter not doing that, not denying him three times, then in fact, uh, we'd have a Nineveh situation in which God is happy. This served as a warning. Uh, Peter uh, adhered to this warning, listened to the warning, and decided to act differently. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing when prophecies fail. God wants prophecies to fail. They're not consistent. They're not consistent. But what this shows you is it's, it's not actually the case that if the Bible was written in which Peter did take it as a warning and decide to lock himself in, in a basement or something to avoid this, or he had the moral fortitude, he was encouraged by this in order to stand up for Jesus. It's not the case that if the Bible is actually written like that, these people would be in a crisis of faith. They'd read this, they'd read it just like Nineveh, and they'd move on, and they'd freak out about other stories within the Bible. They'd have uh, these little fits about times like, oh, Judas, <laughs> Judas, let's <laughs> uh, say, oh, the, the Judas prophecies, they must have taken place. They couldn't be like Nineveh. They'd have a freak out about something else because this is not actually evidence. These are talking points. They don't treat the Bible consistently. The, the Bible is just secondary to their philosophy. And this just allows them something to spout off about. They, they don't they don't think about their position they don't internalize how this works within the bible so not a calvinist says it's not special pleading to say that god's foreknowledge and declarations are different from yours god by definition is actually omniscient and you are not oh i thought that's what we we're debating here i thought what silly me i didn't know that you were just right by definition i would have bowed out of the debate i'm obviously wrong i don't even know what i'm doing in this conversation God is, by definition, actually omniscient. You are not. 
God, by definition, is actually omnipotent. You are not. He's therefore in a credible position to declare things that will surely come to pass, and you are not. Though I just gave you a list of things I declared that came, came about. Why am I not in a position to make those same declarations? It, they, they're, they're working out pretty well for me. He says, on a side note, I am not a Calvinist, or whatever you seem to be attacking with your memes. That, did I call him a Calvinist? This is one of these things that these people do, is they just start hallucinating things that you didn't say. I never called this guy a Calvinist. I never implied he's a Calvinist. The point of the meme is the fact that this is not a faded event. The Peter event's not faded. It's a test from Satan. It's a test for Peter. And there's a very strong element of personal knowledge of behavior involved in this. This is not some sort of faded scripted event that must come true or else God's knowledge fails. And then we throw Jesus to the wayside. Oh, we can't trust Jesus anymore. Um, he's definitely not affiliated with the divine in any sense. And he's now he's a fraud. <laughs> he said that he said a guy is going to deny him three times. And the guy took that as a warning and didn't. He's Jesus. Ah, he's just a fraud. What is that? This is this is what they think is it would be the result. They, they don't actually think that. Um, the, again, this is just talking points for their philosophy. So they don't actually care about the evidence that they're citing and how consistent they are with how they use evidence. This is a talking point for their philosophy. He says, I'm not a Calvinist or whatever you seem to be attacking with your memes, but resorting to ridicule and memes without actually dealing with the argument shows you've conceded the discussion. Does it or does it show that I think you're a dishonest, disingenuous, bad human being who doesn't think about their arguments, makes terrible arguments, and relies exclusively on fallacies and bad logic? You're, you're not. You're not here for a discussion. You're not here for an interaction. You don't actually care about understanding and accurately representing positions you do not agree with. You're not here for a conversation. You are a fraud. You are a fraud. All right, special pleading. I'm explaining this to a grown man. Is where one cites something as an exception to a general or universal principle without justifying the special exception. Another fallacy is begging the question, in which someone just assumed their own position is true, such as arguing God, by definition, is omniscient. Pathetic. And then I post him the meme in which uh, I have, uh, it's, the, it's the scene from uh, Inception, which Leonardo DiCaprio is talking to, uh, what's that English actor's name? Oh, I'm losing it offhand. And Leonardo DiCaprio says, if God did not know the future, then he would not be God. And then uh, he responds, well, then what would he be? So let's take, let's take this guy's conception of God. Let's say all the attributes are true. But then let's take away that one attribute, omniscience. Now, now what is he? What is he? He's not God anymore if he just doesn't have that one thing. And in their mind, that's, that's true. And look at this. Look at who we're dealing with. I'm going to scroll, scroll down. He says, he would be a dummy like the creator of this meme. These people hate God. We're dealing with people who hate God. We do. If God was actually, as the Bible describes God, they would not worship him. <laughs> You'd hope that they would have some humility if they actually figured out that the Bible is true and they might actually take back some of their extremely dangerous beliefs. If the God of the Bible is the true God, this guy's in danger. Danger. 
So let's scroll up to this other paragraph here. Uh, he, he likes to write in these long paragraphs, and that's what they try to do. They're going to try to bait you every whichever direction. They're going to throw out like 50 different, different things to you rather than dealing with the subject at hand because the more they could obfuscate, the more they get away from all their very poorly thought out positions. He writes, I know what the special pleading fallacy and would say that it's not applicable, nor is it begging the question. It is begging the question. Uh, you're, I'm dealing with someone who thinks that God by definition is omniscient. You're begging the question. That's, that's what's in contention here. And in special pleading, you're saying that the same set of evidence applies differently to God than me without actually showing me why you're just claiming that it's the case. It, it, you're just claiming that your evidence, if it's applied to God, it means your particular philosophy. But if it's applied to me, then it doesn't. Where are you getting that? You're just making that up. Your analogy of omniscience is not univocal with the actual definition of omniscience. I never used the word. Let's, let's say um, your analogy of omniscience. We're going to do a little search. Did I ever use this word? This guy's hallucinating. And so let's use twice. And <laughs> I never used the word. And so what I'm dealing with here is an extremely dishonest, disingenuous person. I didn't use the word. I didn't uh, talk about this word. And he's saying that I am equivocating. He says, you're committing the fallacy of equivocation here. I'm not. I didn't use the word. I'm, at, I'm literally arguing that his evidence does not lead to his conclusions. This is, this is an attack on his belief structure. It's not a discussion of what I believe about anything. This is about the consistency and how logical his beliefs are. And he wants to make it about me. He wants to make it about my beliefs, about how the world works and how God is and what God is like. And you'll notice that shift. Anytime you talk to a Calvinist, I know this guy's not a Calvinist, not a Calvinist, um, but anytime you talk to a Calvinist, they will instantly, you, you start talking to them about flaws in their beliefs, they'll instantly just want to talk about what you believe about God, rather than deal with the problems you're bringing up in their worldview. They're, they're trying to shift the discussion, they're sidetracking the discussion, so that they don't have to talk about their own views, and the consistency of their views. And in their mind, they think that if you ha hold views that are also inconsistent, then uh, somehow your complaints about their view are invalid. It's a two-quoku fallacy. This is another fallacy that we're dealing with from this individual, not a Calvinist. So I'm not committing any fallacy of equivocation. I'm literally arguing the point that uh, his evidence doesn't lead to his conclusions, and he is hyperventilating about his philosophy. He's, he writes, the classical definition of God, proper noun, has always been that of a supreme being who is omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, the very standard of goodness itself, etc. Hence the term classical theism. Yeah, that's Platonism. Uh, Neoplatonism, and it infiltrated the church fairly early. And you find it in a lot of the church fathers who have a Greek tradition, but you don't find it in the Jews. <laughs> this, this, is not, this is not the Jewish idea, especially during the time of Jesus. Uh, Josephus doesn't seem to hold these views about God. He might, Josephus might have some sort of uh, omnipresence in mind in the, in the writings of Josephus, but a lot of these 
ideas are very late theological traditions when we look back. They're definitely not in the Bible. The biblical authors do not accept these. And Paul writes that the Holy Spirit searches us and communicates its findings to God, and that way God knows what we need before we need it. <laughs> this, is, this is Paul's idea, that God learns knowledge. God watches the world. In Hebrews, the, the God it sits in heaven and watches the world unfold. This is how God gains his knowledge. God gains knowledge within the Bible. This is just a biblical idea of God. He's appealing to Greek pagan philosophy, particularly Neoplatonism, just Platonism, as we've shown. Plato was a big teacher of these things. These are not in the Christian tradition, except in those who are Neoplatonists. These attributes are necessary, immutable, and quantitatively infinite. Right, not biblical categories. Anything less would be a being who is finite and contingent and not worthy of worship. These are Platonic value sets as well. This is a Platonic worldview. These categories of thought are not found in the Bible. They're not affirmed in the Bible. They're not part of the biblical worldview. It's a subjective metaphysics. That, as we point out, <laughs> is from Plato. That our good friend Mencken ridicules and makes fun of because it's internally inconsistent, it's ridiculous. These, these attributes contradict, oh, it, it, can God do anything? Can God choose not to be somewhere? Can God choose not to know something? They are internally inconsistent. They're flawed. They, they don't work. They, they, this, this system that they're setting up just violates the basic rules of rationality. He writes, why worthy of worship? Is God all good, morally perfect? If not, would you worship a morally defective God? <laughs> Look at that. So his rhetorical questions like, oh man, we, we, we really got to accept these attributes because look at this terrible thing if this attribute wasn't like a property of God. If, if God could do bad. So in this, this theology that these people hold, God not only doesn't sin, but God cannot sin. This is the attribute of impeccability. God does not have the ability to sin. I, I could sin, right? I have the power. This is something that can be done. I could go sin. But God, literally, although he's omnipotent, has all power, can do anything, he cannot sin. It's another violation in their metaphysics. Their metaphysics are garbage. I actually have a podcast where that's called Your Systematic Theology is Garbage. This is garbage thought. This is, this is not internally inconsistent. It's not rational. It's not logical. This is Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism. And it's not in the Bible. None of these attributes, none of these concerns are in the Bible. You have a strong, strong tradition of criticizing God within the Bible. That's actually one thing that I would like to do a podcast exclusively on is the parts of the Bible which criticize God's character. And this is the counter testimony that that Walter Bergerman brings up in his Theology of the Old Testament, that you have a pretty strong, consistent characterization of God as good and just and loving and capable and dedicated to Israel. But then you have a strong counter-testimony as well. These people weren't these Platonists who had these characteristics in mind. God had room for criticism within the Bible. And people do criticize how God acts, when God acts, how, how dedicated God is to his people, how committed to justice God is. There are these counter testimonies against God within the Bible, which would be considered heresy in today's world. The authors of the Bible would be considered heretics 
They would be considered heretics by today's Christians. He says, take omniscience for an example. Would God be a just God on Judgment Day if you lacked knowledge about whether you have truly deserved to be punished or not? <laughs> this this brings me back to the Malachi example. Uh, if this Malachi does not fit their metaphysics. So at the end of Malachi 3, you have an example of all these righteous people, and they're very worried because in their theology, these are these are believing, worshiping uh, Yahwehists. They're, they're dedicated to God. They love God. These are the righteous. And they are very concerned that when God returns, he's going to accidentally punish them along with the wicked. And to alleviate these concerns, God in heaven writes a brand new book, never before written, writes a brand new book with their names in it to assure them that on the day of judgment, they're not going to be accidentally punished on the day of judgment. There, there, there's not an appeal by the prophet to, oh, look at all these Greek attributes. And so there's no chance of this because we have our Greek attributes. There, there's a practical concern, and that practical concern is alleviated through practical means. These people are not Plainists. These people do not accept your value set. You do not have to be a Christian. I like to trigger these people. Yeah, you, you don't have to accept the Bible. The Bible states something. You don't like it. Uh, you, you don't have to be a Christian. Nothing's forcing you to be a Christian. And that triggers them, pointing out that the evidence in the Bible points to the exact opposite of their philosophy. Their philosophy does not flow from the Bible. Starting that paragraph over, take omniscience, for example. Would God be a just God on Judgment Day if you lacked knowledge about whether you truly deserve to be punished or not? <laughs> well, yeah, justice doesn't necessarily require that God punish all things everywhere always god actually writes that he's going to forget people's sins within the bible within the old testament and not even not not even related to the atonement of christ you have these types types of things in the bible it's not whatever standard of justice that he thinks god must have to be god his values do not align with the bible again over and over and over again platonic value sets are not found in the bible they're rejected by the bible explicitly would God be a just God on Judgment Day if you lacked knowledge about whether you truly deserve to be punished or not? If so, why think your judgment would be truly just? This guy, um, I'm, I'm reading these sentences as they're written. They seem to be written in a, some sort of frantic way that's, that the, the, <laughs> the verbiage is a little bit off. Why think your judgment would be truly just? What if you would have repented at some point? He's probably frantic dealing with me. Because he, he's being, he's not being treated how he thinks he should be treated. And his, his ideas are being ridiculed and openly mocked, which he thinks he's all philosophical. And so he's getting triggered, it seems. What if you would have repented at some point after death and, and had you kept living? Would God know and take that into account? You see where that goes. <laughs> no, I don't see where that goes. Whatever standards of justice you have, whatever rhetorical questions you have in your head, the answers aren't obvious. The answers don't automatically prove anything that you believe. And uh, the biblical answer, the biblical position, if we look at the biblical data, would probably not be your position as we have been seen. And so this is, this is all nonsense. He's talking nonsense. His rhetorical hypotheticals are nonsense. They, they violate standard rationality, uh, standard definitions of our terms justice there could be just governments and a just government doesn't necessarily have to punish everything and then i i, I say <laughs> i say this oh okay 
You are right by definition. Definition spawn reality, as everyone knows. So I'm mocking him again for his special plating. He's like, oh, God, boy, definition is omniscience. I'm not. I'm mocking him. And I say, say, my analogy showed that the same evidence that you give for God knowing the future in a specific way would not work if I were the subject. You are arguing the evidence super special applies to God because he is a special case in which the same evidence will lead to different conclusions if the subject is God or if the subject is me. I, I have a spelling error there. It's like sometimes I'm, I'm typing on my phone. I call it pathetic and I say educational moment here. Argument from consequences is a fallacy and so is the moralistic fallacy. Are you able to give an argument that is not a fallacy? Every single one of his arguments is a fallacy. Every single one of his rhetorical questions is an argument for his case or something like that. It is a rhetorical argument. He's not just making this as a fact-finding mission. He's trying to argue the truth of his philosophy. This guy is a basket case. This guy is super steeped in his philosophy. He's not steeped in the Bible. He's not steeped in rationality. He's affirming a system of metaphysics not found in the Bible, rejected by the Bible. And in order to affirm this, this specific type of philosophy, he, he definitely has to rely exclusively on fallacies of logic. That's how this works here. I am going to do a podcast on Molinism. And one of the key points I'm going to pull out is that if you have a worldview and you have claims in those worldviews, you have axioms in those worldviews, and those axioms mutually are exclusive, then one or both of those axioms or claims are false. You have a false worldview, you have a false philosophy, if your axioms contradict. And Platonism, because it wants all sorts of absurd absolute axioms, they automatically contradict. I have uh, the, the podcast with my brother in which we go over a lot of these attributes, we go over metaphysics. We talk about the contradictions in the metaphysical attributes that you see this guy affirming. Anyways, that's about all I have for now. This guy responded to me or whatever, and he's like, oh, I'm not making a moralistic fallacy. It's like, yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. You're a liar, too. You're a liar, too. All your arguments are fallacy. Your metaphysics is junk. It's garbage. And uh, you're not an honest individual that's looking for honest conversation. You want to state your philosophy, spout off about your nonsense philosophy, even though it's contradictory, even though it's absurd, even though you don't take it to its conclusions, although you have to den deny all the biblical evidence. You want to just spout off about your philosophy, and if we don't roll over and praise you for your intellectual superiority, then you have this uh, the connective fit where you're just like, oh, bro, 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 bro. He's like... It's, he accuses me of uh, equivocation for words I don't use. And he, he makes claims that, oh, his evidence super special applies to God in a different way than it would to, to for me. This is what we're dealing with. This is what we're dealing with. All right, that will about do it for us. Questions or comments, put that down below. Leave a comment on uh, the God is Open Facebook page. Start a thread. Thank you for listening.